Uh, today we're kicking off a series called Lost and Found, which we'll get into in a second. Um, but I don't know how often you lose things, uh, but I lose things all the time. All right. Uh, I am on the, if you've ever done a Myers-Briggs personality assessment, uh, I am an off the charts perceiver, which means my outer world can be a bit disorganized at times. And I need loving people to come alongside me and help me from time to time. My internal world organized. External world, uh, not always. And so I lose things all the time. And recently uh, my wife texted me and she, she thought she lost something really important. Uh, she, while I was gone in India, she texted me and said, babe, I thought I lost Olivia. <laughs> and I was like, all those times you beat me up about the keys. <sighs> and, and so Jack was at the house uh, about eight days ago, and she, she was looking around the house, and she's calling Liv's name. We're getting used to having a little bit more space, and it's just hard to keep up with, with all three of them sometimes. And she checks the backyard. The door's locked, but she goes, maybe she went out, and the boys locked it or something. She goes out, live, 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 live. There's no response. And um, she goes inside, and she, she kind of does a walkthrough of every room downstairs saying, Liv, Olivia, Olivia, and there's just a kind of no response. And then she does a walkthrough of kind of upstairs, Olivia, 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 and there's no response. And she's just checking and checking and checking. She checks, you know, the closet. Uh, our, our kids love hide-and-seek. Jalen Clark and, and Clive, uh, they said our house is like the best hide-and-seek house, as far as they know. If they've never been to a, a really big house, but, but for them, it's great. Well, you know, whole vibe. She goes into the closet, looking through the clothes, Olivia, Olivia, Olivia. And she said, babe, I started to get really panicked. Like she just wasn't around. And uh, she had her phone ready to call 911. And she walks into our room one last time. And she calls Liv's name one last time. And again, there's no response to calling Olivia's name. But she sees out of the corner of her eye that our white bedspread has kind of an off-white section to it. And she saw this. Boom. <laughs> Olivia in camo took a impromptu nap, which generally is a dream for a parent, but, but was terrifying, right? Olivia is asleep peacefully right under Jack's nose, the whole time oblivious to her because kind of the panic attack forming in her body. And this off-white blanket covering Liv just kind of blended in. And uh, as Jackie, you know, she finally finds her. My point to this is, is, is I was thinking about this series. This series is all about people that Jesus would call lost, that he desperately wants to find. And there are people all around us who are lost. And while they may seem like they're at peace and they're enjoying their life, especially on Instagram and what they tell you at social events, they're lost, they're confused, they lack purpose. More than ever in the history of this country, we're dealing with mental health issues. They lack a sense of identity. They have shame they try to cover over. They have guilt that's kind of low-laying. You're not allowed to admit. You can't admit you're guilty anymore. But, but under the surface, they know it's there. and It kind of haunts them. Their relationships never seem to deliver what they hope. Everyone tells you, if you find the one romantic relationship, sex, that'll fulfill you. It doesn't. Anyone has been married two seconds can, can tell you that. Friendships don't seem to satisfy and, uh, and again, Royce, Hillary, Sarah, and I, um, we spent the, most of the last two weeks uh, in Istanbul, Turkey, and in India. And um, by the way, the time difference between India and here where we were is 13 and a half hours. Um, if I'm a nightmare today, it's the jet lag, okay? Uh, if I'm on point today, it's the Holy Spirit, okay? There's no middle ground for this sermon. But during our time abroad, we met some precious people. We met a woman I'll call Robin. Robin's an American. Uh, she grew up as a missionary kid in Europe. And in her early teens, she was diagnosed with a condition that, would, that, that made it impossible for her to eat or digest food. 
And it was pretty clear to her parents that around her early 20s, they would be burying her. And uh, her parents were living in anguish. They're trying to figure out what to do. They're on the missions field. And uh, she was living off of IVs for quite a while. And your body's not designed to live off IVs. Uh, a couple years in, you will die, even if you have uh, the IVs. And um, you can't go like a decade on those things. And a few years later, uh, her entire body was miraculously healed in a dramatic way. Or sorry, in a non-dramatic way. Miraculous healing, but she was by herself in a room praying. And she felt like God told her quietly, I healed you. And I want you to give your life uh, to me going to people who I want to know. It wasn't a charismatic prayer circle. wasn't angels showing up. wasn't gold dust. was it a still, small voice in a room that told a young woman, you're healed. Will you follow me? And she has given the last 20 to 25 years of her life bringing the gospel to Central Asia, some of the hardest nations in the world to get into. Kyrgyzstan, point to that on a map. You can't. Uzbekistan, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and the second hardest country to get into in the world as a gospel worker besides North Korea, Turkmenistan, which I watched a Vice mini doc on. It's the weirdest dictator out there. We met another guy uh, named Brian. Uh, he was a guy from Zimbabwe who after college moved to Singapore. And in Singapore, he was in a church that was all about church planting. And he met a gal there who he married who was Filipino, Filipina, and he marries her. And, uh, and his pastor, again, it's very similar to Restored. They're really committed to planting churches, to making disciples. His pastor asked him to pray about where he would plant. And he's like, dude, I'm not even going to be a pastor. What are you talking about? And then uh, he said to me, would you just pray about planting a church? Um, and so uh, he prayed, and the pastor and his wife, a Filipino chick, and, and, and him, uh, they all pray, and God puts Istanbul, Turkey, on their hearts. And so he, he moves there uh, to make disciples. They moved there over a decade ago. They haven't seen that many Turkish people come to know Jesus, which can feel like a bummer. But they have seen dozens of Filipinos who are living in Istanbul without communities. Uh, a lot of them are in Istanbul working as domestic workers in the city. They have met Jesus through this couple going to Turkey. And, and the father knew that there was this fairly small population of people in Turkey who needed to know and grow in Jesus, and nothing that was there would make that happen. And God calls a man from Zimbabwe by way of Singapore to go to Turkey to reach Filipinos with the gospel of Jesus. After we left Turkey, we, we, we went to go and check in on a small group of young adults um, who were looking to see a church planted in Hyderabad, India. Uh, it's a city, uh, city of like 12, 13, 14 million people. The estimates were hard. All we knew was it's bigger than New York City. And in India, it's a minor city. <laughs> and, uh, and there's a picture. I have a couple. There's one of a gal named Maria who uh, she has a house, and we'll get into that in a second. And then another picture. She said, all I have is selfies or pictures of me eating rice. So I don't know. And then I have a picture of a couple named Ashish and Rachel. And um, really, they're, they're all in their mid-20s, and, um, and they had reached out to Chris Vinon, a guy we work with, with our international, um, our big international partnership, the way we do missions through our church is through uh, the Genesis Collective, the international uh, church planning group we're a part of. And, and, and so Chris is a part of that. And Chris, for years now, has been saying, I think there's something's going to happen in Hyderabad. And it was just like, I don't know, man. I don't even know how to say it. Um, maybe something will happen. He said, I just think God's going to bring someone. And he had us really pray through Acts 16 a while ago. And in Acts 16, uh, I'll tell the story real quick. In verse 6, this is Luke writing about the early church. And he says this, they were sent through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. That's in Turkey. They had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, which is Turkey. Uh, when they came 
uh, to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Such an interesting thing. We're going to go preach the gospel. Jesus is like, no, you're not. Passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision in which a Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him, cross over to Macedonia and help us. After he had seen this vision, we immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So all Paul gets is this dream, and it's go to this place, and it's a place he has not been before, and he sees a vision of a man he had not seen before, and he goes, we'll go there, and we'll just see if we meet the right people. And so interesting, um, that's kind of like what we were praying through as, as we went. Um, verse 11 says, from Troas, we put out to sea, and sailed straight for Samothrace the next day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, a Roman colony, and a leading city of the district of Macedonia. So they're in Macedonia. They're in a different part than they thought they'd be. They're in Philippi. So again, they're in the right area, right? It kind of reminds me of, um, uh, and again, and Paul says about prophecies, we see in part, but one day we'll see clearly when Jesus returns. Um, have you guys ever played, um, I don't know the name of it, but you close your eyes, and it's like warmer, colder, trying to find an object, you know what I'm talking about? It's like God's doing that with Paul. He's like, Macedonia, 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 specifically Philippi, okay? And so he's like, okay, I'm looking. Who am I looking for? Um, and it says, we stayed in the city for several days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. And a place of prayer would be a lot of people who are probably pagan who had converted to Judaism. He says, we sat down and spoke to the women gathered there. This is so interesting. He thought man in the broader Macedonia area. Again, he starts to see clear it's a woman in Philippi. And it says a God-fearing woman named Lydia. So he shows up to this Beth Moore Bible study. It's all women. <laughs> not what Paul thought. And it's so important because his own, his own prejudices, his own biases would go, no, nah, that's not how you start a, a, a temple or a church, you know. A God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the, from the city of Thyatira, was listening. Uh, you know the city name. Uh, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. So she is a businesswoman. She's an important woman. Uh, purple cloth might not sound that impressive, but again, purple throughout history, the color of royalty. She makes clothes that are expensive. Okay. This is like, you know, uh, you know, I don't know, Giorgio Armani or something. After she and her household, I don't know what's funny about Giorgio Armani. All right. After she and her household were baptized, she urged us, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. And then she starts a church out of her house because she's wealthy. She's got a big house. She's like, let's do this thing. And so uh, Chris has been telling us for years, pray through this text for that city uh, for about five years now, who leads Genesis Collective. It's like a, a dad uh, to me and to this church. Um, and um, he, he tell you, right, uh, city of Hyderabad. And then recently a friend of a friend introduced Chris to Maria, the first gal, when we were at a leadership conference that we put on in November in Dubai. Okay, it's hard to see where we're, where we're going. And she shows up. Now, Maria is a young Mexican-American woman. She grew up in the States as a daughter of an immigrant single mother. God taught her to be an outsider early on in her life and how to engage with a culture different from hers and how to be a bridge. She would translate for her mom everywhere they went uh, as a kid. that I grew up very quickly because, like, the info my mom's getting, I'm getting at the same time. 
And so um, she's been in the country for three and a half years in the city. She's been doing admin work for a missions agency that's planting rural churches in the villages, which is super important. It's super necessary. Um, she speaks Telugu, the local language, better than other Indians from other parts of India who have immigrated to Hyderabad. Hyderabad is like the tech capital of India. Um, Google and Apple have moved their Indian offices there. Um, if you talk to a call center, uh, it's probably someone in Hyderabad. There's a lot um, of tech and information and IT. And uh, she was recently given an amazing deal on a house where she wants to start a, a house church out of, but she doesn't know anything about starting churches um, or, or really anything like that. Um, and so the churches that they help start in the rural villages are house churches in the rural villages led by a local. And she said, man, I've been in the city for a while now, and I'm just realizing that no one's reaching the upper class. And the upper class here would pretty much be the middle class for a lot of us. They're, they're, and they're the upper class, especially the millennials, and she said a lot of them, they feel very Western, they are very non-rural, they are very um, urban, um, they're rocking coffee shops, they're rocking breweries, they're speaking in English to each other. Um, and she said, so I, I want to see a church started for these people, I have no idea what it would look like. And she just asked Chris, can you help? Do you have anyone that can help us? And a guy named Rob was supposed to go, uh, he leads the church in Dubai, there was an emergency at the church in Zimbabwe. I was supposed to lead a trip to Northern Africa to see the couple that we all love that came out of this church with a team of people. That trip fell through at the last minute. And so they just said, Andy, we knew your plans got canceled, so you should go to India. Uh, and I said, okay, uh, we know you have the time. And so we went and I taught six sessions over three days and we prayed. Uh, we ate food that was way too spicy for my baby palate. <laughs> you guys know me, man. Public restrooms and spicy food, not my jam. It was a vibe and a half. Now, these might seem like three random stories. Zimbabwean guy, American gal, Mexican-American gal, India, Turkey, Singapore, Philippines, whatever it is. But they're all really one story of a group of people playing a game with the father. Find my kids that don't know they're my kids yet. People loved by God who don't even know it. You have brothers and sisters in Pakistan and Turkey and India who don't know we're related yet. They don't know they have a dad that loves them. These people for whom Jesus died. But those people aren't just in India and Istanbul. They're in University Heights and Normal Heights and North Park and Hillcrest and City Heights. They're in South Park. They're next to you. They're at work. They're at coffee shops. They drive your Ubers. They're in your workout classes. They're all around. So that's why the series is called Lost and Found. How do we partner with the Father? How do we join with him, not just internationally, but locally, to help people find their way back to God who have gotten lost along the way? And so this is a series where, where we're going to talk about what it means to, to reach people with the Father's love with the gospel of Jesus. The series is going to take, it's going to be a short series. It's just going to take us to Easter into the launch of our Alpha program, um, our Alpha ministry designed to create space for people who are not yet followers of Jesus to ask questions, and as they do, encounter the people of God, the Spirit of God, and the gospel of God, and they become followers of Jesus. And so this series is all about helping people, partnering with the Father in his work of calling our lost sons, his lost sons and daughters home. So to kick off the series, I'm going to look at a passage of scripture that's very near and dear to my heart. If you guys have Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. keeps going. I know, I know. By the way, if you're new, we are not a production. We are a family. So I'm just, just filling you in. Pastors have, have boogers too. 
All right. Also, thanks for praying for me while I was sick in India. Again, thank you, thank you, thank you. It was, it was a blast. This is serious. Um, we already have this for the leak, and now I've got this situation. So, um, okay. Luke chapter 15. I appreciate it, by the way. I'm just, whatever. All right. Luke 15, chapter 1. All right. Luke 15, chapter 1. This is um, uh, the gospel of uh, Luke, and, um, and it's written to describe the life teaching uh, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, um, kind of just d- describing who Jesus is, what he taught, why he came, that whole thing. And uh, this is uh, close to the end of the gospel. Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem. He's heading towards the cross. And now we're going to look at some of his teaching uh, that, that you know, we call parables. Uh, Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1, it says, All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. Now, um, when you read anything in the Bible, it is so, so, so important. We did a 16-week series on reading the Bible, so you guys know this. But uh, it's kind of like real estate. It's like location, location, location. Context, context, context. How you interpret, you can't read any passage and go, I think it means this. No, no, we go, what did this originally mean? To the best of our abilities, what is this saying? And, And part of that is what genre is this? If it was poetry, then it was never news. And if it was news and history, it was never poetry. And so we're going to go, okay, wh- what's the context here? So, so this is Jesus' life. He's teaching. But who is he teaching to? That context matters. Recently, I, I was with my kids, and I had to run into the store, and I was going to leave both my sons in the car. Before you freak out, it was a 7-Eleven, and it was three steps. It was a clear glass, and there was a, one more step and a counter, and I could see them the entire time, okay? Um, and uh, so it was open right here. Right here, there was a big shelf. That you, so you couldn't see the clerk, okay? And, uh, and so Calvin was freaking out. I'm like, all right, man, I'll bring you in. But we were running late. I was trying to, you know, get there on time. So, so I bring him in. But then I just want to teach him a lesson. I just want to show him, hey, I just want you to see I can see you the whole time. So when he gets back in the car, I just go, hey, man, look, I can see you. And I said, as long as you can see me, Cal, do this. And I'll do this back to you. And we we're walking. And then I, I opened this door. And I just said, I can see you. I can see you. And I shut the door, and then I realized there's a clerk in there who has no idea who I am. <laughs> it's nighttime, right? Because, uh, again, it's kind of blocking. So I get into the car, and I see this guy come out like, right? Um, the context matters. I could be a serial killer. I could be reassuring my son of his love for him. It just depends on the context. And it's no different when we approach Scripture. What does it say? Where does it say it? And so it says he's talking to the tax collectors and sinners. Now, these were people who would have been taught that people could never love someone like them. We live in a day and age where it's kind of like, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, we're all sinners, hey. Increasingly, it's less that. But for we're like, oh, yeah, we're all sinners, we all fought, whatever. That's not the case here. These are people who are identified, in t- their entire identity is wrapped up in sin. Think slave traders. Think prostitutes, think pimps, think tax collectors, people who are embezzling money from the Jews so that the Roman government can persecute them, kill their sons, rape their daughters, steal their stuff. They're traitors, okay? So they're like, man, God could never love anyone like you. Think disabled people who would have been taught at the time a false teaching that Jesus rebukes his disciples for, but were taught that um, if you were sick, it was because of your sin or your parents' sin, kind of like a, a pseudo form of karma. And so Jesus is speaking to people who would have thought, I could never be loved by God. They would have been banned from synagogue. They go, I could never draw near into his presence. But it's interesting that they flocked to Jesus. We live in a day where, where churches so often don't see people 
flock to Jesus who are big-time sinners. We have a lot of the people that look like the, the, the other group of people Jesus is talking to. It says some other people are there. The Pharisees and scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. We're going to do a whole week on being a friend of sinners and being a sinner who has a friend. But um, uh, real quick, the Pharisees, the, why they're upset about that is the Pharisees built out the whole system that said those other people couldn't know God. They're in on that system, and they're self-righteous people who thought they deserved God's love. Polar opposite of the tax collectors and sinners. These people are like, could I ever dare enter God's presence? No. The door shut in my face. And it was shut in their face by these people who are like, I'm God's gift to himself. He needs me on his team, right? They wake up, you're amazing. God, you shine brighter in this world because you've got a winner on your squad like me, who's morally upright. And so he's talking to some people who assume God can never love them, and he's talking to another group who assume they deserve God's love, self-righteous people. So there's the self-loathing, and then there's the self-righteous. And our culture is full of self-righteousness. And it's not just religious people, right? You go conservative, progressive, everyone is, you have to accept me as I am. I'm awesome. I'm amazing. Deal with it. And Jesus goes, no, 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 you'll see in a second. We're precious to God. But, but he loves us out of our brokenness. He pursues us because we have gotten lost. So he told him this parable. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? And again, the other day when Jack thought she lost Olivia, what she didn't do was, oh, I've got Calvin and Clive. I mean, two out of three is pretty good. Just one. He goes, no, 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 no. If one's missing, that one is on your heart. When he, is, he, he goes out looking. When he has found it, he joyfully puts the sheep on his shoulders. And coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99, and in the context, so-called righteous people who don't need repentance. What a gentle shepherd. He doesn't go, what a, what a dumb sheep. Sheep got lost. It's its fault. Right? He doesn't go and, and find the sheep and beat the sheep or break the sheep's legs turn the sheep into a pair of Ugg boots. He doesn't blast the sheep. He throws the sheep over his shoulders and he goes, rejoice with me. My sheep's here. I'll climb mountains. I'll cross rivers. High, low. This is not like REI didn't exist. To go find that sheep is work and effort. And he goes, that sheep that's lost its way is worth me giving my all to find it. As you keep going, um, he tells another parable with a similar idea. Verse 8, it says, or what woman who has 10 silver coins, and by the way, one silver coin would have been about a day's wages, but a day's wages were probably less than that. So for this woman to have 10 silver coins means she's wealthy. How many people you know that aren't drug dealers that have 10 paydays worth of cash lying around their house, right? 10 paydays, 10 paychecks worth of cash. So this is a wealthy woman, which would make you think if she loses one coin, it's not that big of a deal. It says if she loses one coin, does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? 
And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found the silver coin I lost. And as he speaks to these people, some of these people would have thought, I'm just pocket change. I'm not a big deal. I'm not worth going after. I'm not worth loving. And he goes, no, 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 this is who God is. He tears up the house looking for you. You might feel like you have no value. You have value because God says you have value and he wants you. That's the heart of the father, he says. And it's the same thing. I tell you in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. And then he moves into another story that we're very used to. It's called the prodigal son. Prodigal means wasteful, bad with money, bad with resources. And, and, and Tim Keller, you know, we all love him. Uh, he wrote a book called The Prodigal God, and he said the most wasteful person in the story isn't the son, it's the father, as we're going to see in a second. He is scandalously wasteful. Start in verse 11. He, he also said a man had two sons, The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Now, what he just did is he walked up to his dad and he said, Dad, I know you have cash. I know you've got an estate. I know when you die, I should get at least half of this bad boy. So let's pretend that you're dead now and I'll never talk to you again. I'll treat you like you're dead. And can you give me my half of the money, how many of you guys are parents would sign up for that? Right. No, you, what? Even in today's day and age, you're like, no, 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 no. You're out. Of, you, the new things are out of the will. I've got a living trust. It's over for you, buddy. And it's even more drastic what he requests in this culture, an ancient Middle Eastern patriarchal society. Again, it's a, it's a story, but it's told to a people who would have understood it in context. Uh, missiologists, these are people who, who study mission and missionaries and how the gospel's gone out over the course of the world. They've identified three responses to sin in human cultures, guilt, shame, and fear. And so they talk about that in different societies. You have to share the gospel in a different way. So in some societies, um, they're guilt-innocence cultures. That's much of modernity, a lot of Europe historically, a lot of America now. Um, guilt-innocence cultures are individualistic societies. America loves the individualism, right? I'm going to do me. Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. Mostly Western, where people who break the laws are guilty and seek justice or forgiveness to rectify a wrong. So you're guilty, you want to be innocent. Then there are fear power cultures. These refer to animistic contexts, typically tribal, where science hasn't taken off yet, where people are afraid of evil and harm, and they pursue power over the spirit world through, through magical rituals. Neck sacrifices all the time. There's a demon in it, of, under every rock. There's this, this idea that you need a power stronger than the power that they experience, whether it's witch, doc- witch doctors or shamans or uh, these, these other faiths, these tribal rituals. And then there's a third one that's shame and honor cultures. This is very common in Central Asia. This is common in the Middle East today. This is common in Northern Africa. This is common in Eastern Europe. And shame-honor cultures describe collectivistic cultures, again, common in the East, where people are shamed for not fulfilling a group's expectations and seek to restore their honor before the community. And what some, some secular sociologists have pointed out is we're becoming a, um, an honor-shame culture with things like Twitter mobs. The community goes, you're banned. You're right, cancel culture. You're out. 
And then you've got to like apologize in a self-righteous way that makes you not look too bad for what you did, but good enough to make the crowd go, you're welcome back into the club. And so there's shame, honor. And so shame, honor is the culture Jesus is speaking into when he gave this teaching, when he gave this parable. Um, Joseph Hellerman, he's a professor at, at Biola University at Talbot uh, School of Theology, and he wrote a book called When Church Was a Family that we look to a lot. It's an academic work, but it's really helpful for how we view church. And, and he talks about the movie, he talks about um, this idea of an honor-shame culture and how um, in the East, in the New Testament times, family was your highest kind of identity. It wasn't this individualistic, I'm going to go find myself in Brooklyn. I'm going to backpack it was my family's my identity. And he talks about, um, he was struck by this uh, in a real unique way as he watched the movie Titanic. Spoiler alert, the ship goes down. Spoiler alert, Jack dies, okay? Um, probably wouldn't have died if Rose scooted over, but that's a whole other thing, okay? <laughs> he watched that movie with a friend from the East, and a guy from the Middle East, and he said, in watching it, the guy was disgusted by Rose turning on her family to get with Jack. He said, because in our culture, it's not get happy. Romance isn't the highest level of, of identity. It's, it's, it's your family of origin, specifically your siblings, which is interesting. In the ancient Near East, your brother or sister were closer to you than your spouse. I'm not advocating for that. I'm just saying that's how they viewed things. Family was, was thick. And he said, um, how could she bail on her family and their security and their love for some, like, pretty boy Irish dude who was dancing in the basement of a ship? I obviously don't know ships. Aaron, what's the basement of a ship called? There it is. Whatever that is. He's down there, this commoner guy, you know, cool accent. He's dancing, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. And in the West, we're like, Rose, follow your heart. Be your own person. You do you. In the ancient Near East, they're like, oh, how could she bring shame on her family like that? So in a shame-honor culture that was patriarchal, the father was the most important member of the family, and the son tells his dad, let's pretend you're dead so I can have your money. Do you see how scandalous this is? Verse 13. By the way, the father gives the assets to the son, which he does not have to do. He can stone him, beat him with sticks. There's different ways he could respond to what's been requested. What he doesn't have to do is go, yeah, let's, let's cash that stuff out. Let's get, make it liquid. Pass it over to, you know, Jer uh, not Jeremy, I don't know, a name, okay, a son. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate and foolish living. We know part of that foolish living, from what his older brother says later, is prostitutes. So just think he went wild, sex, drugs, rock and roll. Ancient designer drugs, you know, dope chariot with rims. He's doing his thing. Ancient Near East, wilding out. And, 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 and he experiences what we often experience. Sin turns on him. It promises pleasure, and it gives it for a while, but it leads to ruin. It always leads to death. And it says in verse 14, after he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country. He had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. This is, a, again, Jewish culture. You, do, you, you don't eat bacon, okay? You're not a big, you're not like a big, you know, I love hitting Koreatown, getting some like pork belly. Like that's not this culture. This culture is pig, swine, disgusting. So to be working with pigs in the fields, which is dirty on a good day, 
as a Jewish man from a wealthy family would say, you have given up on any sense of identity, cultural or familial. You're all alone in this nasty world. You are lost. You've given up on pretty much everything. And again, sin takes you further than you thought you would go, and it costs you more than you thought it would cost. Verse 16, he longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. Can you imagine being jealous of what pigs are eating? Like your stomach's growling, you're like, man, that looks amazing. He is so broken. He is so at the end of his rope. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger? And he goes, I know what I'll do. It's the invention of religion. I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your sons. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. This is religion. This is humanity's attempt. I know I can't be a son anymore. I jacked that up. But can I work for you? Can I just be your servant? I'm not going to draw near. I know I cannot draw near, which the people Jesus would have been talking to would have resonated with. Again, maybe you resonate with it today. I've blown it too bad. My sin's too big. The consequences are too real. The shame is too heavy. I can't go near that God who dwells in unapproachable light. But maybe I can get my act together and hang out on the outer courts. And maybe he'll let me hang out there and I can just kind of graze the corners of the field of God's people, his real people. I can never be a true son or daughter. But maybe I can work for his love as a servant. And he starts walking back and he approaches. And I don't know if you've ever had a moment in your life where like your boss calls you or it's 2020 texts you it's like hey when you get into the office we need to talk that's it you guys love those texts right he knows oh man an awkward conversation's coming remember in high school i ditched one time i ditched many times but um <laughs> one of the times i ditched i had like a whole racket go with my friend he would change the you know attendance record um <laughs> and then he ditched <laughs> and it fell apart but he i just remember i remember him calling saying where are you it's like somewhere <laughs> At the beach, field trip, kind of unique one. Text from your spouse. We need to talk. So he is—he's living in that space of man. When I see, what's my, how's my dad going to react? Will he kill me? Will he beat me up? What I did was already bad, but now to come back is to enhance the shame because everyone remembers me again. Because there's that disgrace, that's disgraced his father. Could be a literal honor killing. The shame honor context. What's the father going to do when he comes? You can imagine practicing his I'm sorry speech. I've sinned against heaven on earth. Okay. Sinned against heaven on earth. Okay. No, that doesn't sound. I've sinned against you and heaven and earth. Okay. That sounds good. Um, How's it going to go? And wondering, will it take? Will the apology work? Can I be a hired hand in my father's house? And then it says, but while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. Compassion is the most frequently attributed emotion to Jesus in the Gospels. He sees people, he feels for them, and he wants something for them. And this father, who is the heart of God, Jesus reveals the heart of God. Again, he's saying this is what God the Father is like. He runs 
continuing verse 20, he threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. Again, religion, I know you don't love me, but if I work, will you approve of me? And, and he doesn't listen to the I'm sorry speech. The son said to him, verse, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, quick, put on the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. He doesn't listen to the I'm sorry speech. He's got no interest in religion. He wants a relationship with him. We can get used to this, guys. But this is our story if we really know Jesus. Oh, while and out might look different, might be more internal than external, but we have hurt God, we have hurt people, and we assume God, we're kind of nervous. We're like kids with, with a physically abusive father who flinch for no reason. We, we go, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm bad. I, I deserve pain. I deserve punishment. But the father goes, not only am I not punishing you, I'm restoring you. And he doesn't just restore him technically, like put him back in the will, get an accountant and lawyer in here. It's fine. Might have heard the ring's like a credit card. You know, we're giving him spending power again. I know it's a little silly. No, 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 no. He could, in Greek it says he would not stop kissing him. Charles Spurgeon, famous preacher from the UK, said this. He said, the father kissed his son to make him quite certain that it was all real. That's why he kept kissing him. The prodigal in receiving these many kisses might say to himself, all this love must be true for a little while ago. I heard the hogs grunt, and now I hear nothing but the kisses from my dear father's lips. So his father gave him another kiss, for there was no way of convincing him that the first was real, like repeating it. And if there lingered any doubt about the second, the father gave him a third If when the dream of old was doubled, the interpretation was sure, these repeated kisses left no room for doubt. The father renewed the tokens of his love that his son might be fully assured of his reality. He did it that in the future, it might never be questioned. You felt those kisses? You felt that affection that you don't deserve, but you have because of Jesus? Spurgeon continues, some of us were brought so low before we were converted that God gave us an excess of joy when he saved us that we might never forget it. Sometimes the devil says to me, Spurgeon talking, and says, you are no child of God. You have a bad day. You don't do your devo. You give in to sin. Spurgeon says this, though, on those days, I have long ago given up answering him. For I have found that, is a wa- that it is a waste of time to argue with such a crafty old liar as Satan is. He knows way too much for me. But if I must answer him, I say, why I remember when I was saved by Jesus. I can never forget even the very spot of ground where I saw my Savior. There and then my joy rolled in like some great Atlantic billow, a big wind, and burst in a mighty foam of bliss covering all things. I cannot forget it. That is an answer which even the devil, argument that even the devil cannot answer, for he cannot make me believe that such a thing never happened. The Father kissed me much, and and I remember it full well. The Father is not interested in the, the speech. He's interested in the boy. And he kisses him, and he kisses him, and he kisses him, and, and, and he does restore him. 22, bring out the best robe, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Some of you guys know this, but it's important. The robe would have belonged to the father. He's being clothed in the garments of the father. 
the ring is the symbol of authority. Again, it'd be like a credit card. You walk around with a ring and stamp things that, and say, All right, we'll pay for this. Sandals were a sign of wealth. Servants didn't wear shoes in the house. Only sons did. You're my son. You've got authority and you're righteous. That's what he says over us now. Trang, you're my daughter. You're righteous. You have authority. The son, again, has requested the status of a servant, but he's been denied. He's been restored as a son. So you might be wondering, man, where does the shame from what the son did go? It's gone. The only one who experiences any shame is the father himself who ran out with his robe dress thing that he would have worn back in the day that's flying up so people can see his shame. And he's running out to his son who has shamed him infinitely more than what his legs and other stuff looks like. He bears the shame. Who pays for his reckless living? Not the son. The father absorbs the debt. His money's still gone. It didn't, it's not like, oh, it's back. No, there's no insurance policy on this kid. His money is gone. He takes the loss financially. He takes the shame. Again, to a random observer, everyone else at the party and in the neighborhood would have been reluctantly eating at this feast. The angels might be celebrating, but the neighbors were judgy. Why are we having filet mignon for this cat? He's awful. Someone needs to talk. I'm worried about him. He's getting taken advantage of. He's getting pushed around. He has bad boundaries. Again, this older brother represents the Pharisees and the self-righteous people. But there was a new group of people that knew that they could find their way home to God. So I want to close. On, y- on your seats, you guys have these things. Uh, five for five. Also, I hate to do this again, Dave, because we're going to get stuck.